Don. Good morning. If you take nothing away from the sermon this morning, take that last sentence from the uh, song, Live for Him Each Day. We are returning to the Gospel of Luke this morning, and we're going to read Luke 19 and begin reading in verse 11. This is one of the parables that Jesus taught. It's often called the parable of the minas. And whenever we come to a parable of Jesus, um, what he is trying to do is take familiar themes, familiar ideas, or familiar historical events, and to develop them to teach us a spiritual lesson. And that's what he does here. He takes us from the realm of the known to the realm of the unknown. And he does that in a very simple way, um, and he conveys lessons that are new and unfamiliar to us. It is an amazing parable. It really is. Um, And the reason that it's so amazing is that you are in it. You are in this parable. And uh, everyone here this morning, in some way, is in this parable. Uh, There are no exceptions. It's one of the most remarkable parables in um, that it includes all humanity in one single story. And so I want you to listen carefully to it and uh, because Jesus is speaking to you and Jesus is speaking to me, um, not only speaking to us, but speaking about us. And there is potential treasure in this parable that uh, is for you. And it is absolutely beyond imagination. So listen carefully as we read this this morning. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how, every, uh, how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina uh, has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. 
You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that know that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Did you see yourself? You're there. In some way, you're there in this parable. Now, the story sounds very familiar. If you've read the Bible, you say, well, this is very similar to another parable, like the parable of the talents. That's found in Matthew chapter 25. But it's a different story. It's in a different location. The purpose of the story is completely different. In uh, Luke 19, stands on its own merits. It's not the same as Matthew 25. There are similarities in that money is given out in both cases. But here, the money that is given out is exactly the same to every person. There, in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, it's different. Some are given more, some are given less, and some are given even less. It's very different, and the the meanings are quite different. Um, Our story is actually uh, captivating uh, for another reason. Jesus is drawing on a lesson from an actual historical event that had taken place um, many years, well, not many years, but a few years before uh, this story is told. The story is actually quite simple. It tells of a nobleman who goes to a far country to receive his kingship. And he has to go to this other country uh, because that is where there is a greater authority. And this greater authority is the one who can pronounce or acknowledge or recognize um, this nobleman's kingship over the country he came from. So as you read the story, it might confuse you. It, it, It almost sounds like he's a king of a country, He goes to another country to become king of another country. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying is he's in a country, he's acting as king in that country, but he has never been officially recognized as king. And so he has to go to a far country to be officially recognized as king and then come back and rule over that land. That's that's the idea of the story here. He's not um, seeking anything but rulership or kingship over the country he came from. Now, as he leaves, he calls ten of his servants together, and he entrusts to them one mina each. One mina. What's a mina? A mina is um, an amount of money. It equals to a 100 days or three months' worth of salary. So if the average... Uh, American household, or if the median American household earns $50,000 a year, then one mina is $12,500. And so he entrusts to each of the 10 servants $12,500 in today's uh, value. And then he leaves. And he says to them before he goes, now take this money. Who does the money belong to, by the way? It's the king's or the, the nobleman's money. And so they're just entrusted with that money. And they're to go out, buy and sell, trade, and make, earn, you know, earn more so that when the nobleman comes back, he gets his money with profit. That's the purpose of it. 
And so that's what they're told to do. What they do with the money demonstrates something about them. It demonstrates to the nobleman who will become the king how faithful his servants are. How faithful will you be with what I have entrusted to you? It also tells, them, tells him something about their attitude towards him. How much do they love him? How much do they care about his concerns, his purposes, his realm, his kingdom? How much do they care? What they do with what they receive will tell him a lot about his servants. So when he <clears throat> returns, he calls his uh, servants together. And in uh, business today, you would call it a performance evaluation. Is that what they call it, Howard? Where you, you come in and you're, you're evaluated for how well you've done as an employee. Well, they're being evaluated for how well they've done as a servant. And he does a performance evaluation on them. And as the story goes, there are three types of people. And the three types of people represent every single person in this room. There is a faithful servant. There is a not-so-faithful servant. And then there are citizens who uh, reject him outright. If you are a true servant, a faithful servant, the rewards are not only out of this world, literally, but the rewards are all out of proportion to anything that you do for the Lord. Absolutely remarkable. And we want to talk about that, and I want you to think about this starting right now. <clears throat> there is a, uh, uh, an attribute of the Lord that is called grace. And grace is undeserved favor. That is the way God operates. That's the realm in which He operates. Grace is undeserved favor. He takes people who deserve the opposite and he gives them something they just don't deserve at all. And it's not just a little bit. It's not just a handshake. It's an outpouring of benefit and abundance that he gives to, to us. That's his grace. Think about that as we go through the story. <clears throat> the wicked servant loses his reward, and the enemies are destroyed. So that's the, that's the story that he tells. That's the parable. Now, if you remember, um, was it uh, Noad, I think it was, that was uh, teaching on, uh, on the last part of um, Luke, the last story in Luke, which was about Nicodemus. And, or Zacchaeus, I mean. Zacch yeah, whatever. Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, they all sound the same to me. <laughs> Zacchaeus. And uh, they were in the, the town of Jericho. And uh, that's where he was from. Now, there's something very interesting about the town of Jericho at this time. There was a palace in town, and it was built by a king. And it was built by one of the, uh, the Herods. The name of this Herod was Archelaus. The palace was built by him. It's where he reigned, and he ruled over the uh, land of Judea. And it included Jericho and Jerusalem and, and some of the surrounding regions. And so we want to do a little history lesson about Archelaus. Um, as you may know, the Roman Empire was in power at this time, and they were a conquering nation. They would go out and they would just take over mass land tracts as they would go, 
and they reigned basically all of what is now known as Europe, uh, North Africa, the Middle East. It was a huge world empire at that time. And they were very disciplined in many ways, undisciplined in others, but, but as far as their military strength was concerned, phenomenal strength. Uh, their building projects were um, outlandish. In fact, you can go to places in Europe today. I've been to places in England and uh, other parts of Europe where you can still see um, things that they built 2,000 years ago, and they're still in existence today. The Colosseum is one of them. Um, but they, uh, waterways and roadways that still exist to this day. Well, they also were the, uh, the uh, government that taxed everybody. And so certain territories that they took over, or all the territories that they took over, they would set up monarchs or, or sub-kings to rule over those areas, and the military presence in those countries was, was to control the people and to maintain order and law in those areas. And then they would have tax gatherers. And we've talked about some of the tax gatherers in Israel who were Jewish, but they were working for the Roman government. And so they would collect taxes of the citizens of Israel in this case. The ultimate king over all of Rome, all of the Roman Empire, was Caesar. In this case, Augustus Caesar was in power. And under Caesar, there were subordinate kings who ruled different lands that Rome had conquered. And uh, in order for a sub-king to rule, he had to have the authority of Caesar. He couldn't just go in and rule and reign. It had, he had to have the right given to him, the responsibility given to him, the authority given to him by Caesar. And there was a king over Israel. And the king who ruled over Israel were not Romans, and they were not um, Jews. They were Idumeans, uh, uh, and they were part of the family called the Herods. How many of you have heard of Herod? Okay, so the most famous Herod you've ever heard of is Herod the Great. Yeah. And why is he so great? Because that's what he named himself. He was a very humble man, and he was called Herod the Great because that's what he wanted to be called. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, it was the year 40 B.C. that Herod the Great decided that he wanted to establish um, a kingdom uh, for himself and to rule over Judea and other areas. And uh, so he went to Rome. And he negotiated with that famous guy named Mark Antony. You've heard of him in some of your history lessons. To grant to him the right to rule under Caesar over Israel. And it was given to him. And so he ruled over this land until about 4 B.C. And this great one had written a last will and testament. So that when he died his um, family would continue to be rulers. And so he divided the kingdom into a tetrarch. A tetrarch is four, uh, a quarter part of the land. And I know it's going to be very confusing because of the way he did it. There's four parts in a tetrarch, a tetrarchy, but he divided it among three sons. So then it can't be four parts anymore. But anyway, it's still called a tetrarch, all right? 
So that's just kind of a little history lesson. One of the areas that was left, so three of his sons got the four parts. And one of the sons was to reign over Judea, Jerusalem, Jericho, that whole region of Israel. And his name um, was Archelaus. So Archelaus and his two brothers now began to reign over the part that Herod the Great had been controlling as king. But the problem is, Herod the Great didn't have the power to just transfer the kingship to them. They had to get the authority, the imprimatur of Rome, um, for themselves. And so, though they took over the kingship, or over the reign of their father in those different parts, and they began to act as kings, they really weren't the king yet. And so, they themselves had to go to Rome and, and go before Caesar and have the authority of the kingship given to them. Does that all make sense so far? Okay, I hope I haven't lost you. So that's the actual historical story that takes place, um, that had taken place several years before Jesus tells this story. So Archelaus became ruler over Judea and Jerusalem in particular. And during his initial reign, still not king, during his initial reign, he had placed on the temple a golden eagle. Now, I don't know if you know about Rome, but the eagle was there, what, what represented the um, kingdom of Rome, if you will. And so right on the temple, there's this golden eagle placed. Now, you can imagine the Jews, how they, uh, how they like this, right? This is an idol on the temple. And uh, it just infuriated them. And so when he came to power, they took it off. And uh, that infuriated him. And so he waited, but he wanted to show his great strength and his power and his might and his authority over these people. And so he waited until the, uh, the, the time when most of the Jews would be together in Jerusalem, which was the Passover. And when they all came together for that first Passover after his father had passed away, he came and he slaughtered 3,000 Jews. And so the people all loved him, right? They hated him. They absolutely detested Archelaus. And so the time came when he had to appear before uh, Caesar. And so he left his kingdom of Judea, and he was going to go to Rome to get his crown. He's a nobleman. And he's going to go to Rome to become king. But as he goes to Rome to become king, the Jews follow him along the way and they appeal to Caesar, do not let this man reign over us. He's a wicked ruler. He's a wicked man. We don't want him over us. And that's the uh, context of this story. So he goes to the far country. His citizens hate him. And they send a delegation And they say, we do not want this man to reign over us. But it didn't work. He did gain the authority to rule. He did reign. And so when he came back, he wasn't too pleased with the people who had gone and had tried to keep him out of power. You can imagine that, right? And so what's he going to do to these wicked people? He's going to slay them. And that's what he did. 
He slayed them, and then to his faithful followers, he rewarded them for being faithful. That's the story. Now, Jesus takes the story that is familiar to the people. The place where he reigned was Jericho. That's where Jesus was. And the, the palace of this guy was still there in Jericho, although he was no longer in power at this particular time. The, his palace was still there. The memories were very fresh in the people's mind. And he was in Jericho, and I'm sure the conversation turned to this wicked Archelaus who had once reigned over them. And Jesus takes this story, and he now applies it to himself. Now, he's not a wicked ruler. I want to state that up front. But the application is amazing, and it's remarkable, and you're in it. So let's talk about that. He's traveling from Jericho. He's just leaving Jericho, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's the next stop. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. And it's a 17-mile walk. And as he walks, he's discussing with his disciples all of these things that have taken place. It's a long time to be talking. This is condensed. Um, as they take these steps towards Jerusalem, you have to remember the mindset of the disciples. Okay, we're coming to Jerusalem. The Old Testament tells us that Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Jesus is the king. He was born king of the Jews. He's going to set up his reign. You remember the arguments that some of the disciples had? Uh, Lord, I just wanted to ask you a question. Um, is it okay that uh, when you come to your kingdom, you know, I sit on your right hand and my brother sits on your left hand? And the other disciples going, what are you asking? That's terrible to be asking such a thing. Well, it's because they wanted the same position, you know. And that was their mindset. It was he's going to set up his reign on the earth. He's going to set up his kingdom on the throne of David in, in Jerusalem. And they're on the way to Jerusalem. So this must be the time. And as they see over the horizon, the city of Jerusalem, man, their hearts are just being flooded with, with thoughts of grandeur and, and their place in the kingdom. And uh, when it's, it's got to be pretty quick here. I mean, maybe it's a few days away or maybe a week at the most. But we're going to reign. And he's going to be king. And we're going to be reigning with him. Well, how do they know this? Well, because the scripture says so. Are they right? Does the scripture say so? Yes, it does. It does say so. But what they didn't realize is that there's a gap between this time frame and what's to come. His reign was not for that time. First, the cross must come. And then the crown. And so they could... Quite, be quite familiar with the scripture and say, well, Jeremiah talks about this, Isaiah talks about this, Ezekiel talks about this, Zechariah talks about the Lord reigning. He's going to reign. And yes, the scripture does say that. And so they're right. He will reign. And he will reign in Jerusalem. And he will be seated on the throne of David. And his kingdom will be an enduring kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever. But what they ignored were the prophecies that pointed to the cross like Psalm 22 and Psalm 35 and Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 11 and 12 and, and so on. And so as they walked on this road and Jerusalem came on the horizon, they gave those other prophecies no thought at all. All they could think about was reigning with Christ, reigning with him. Surely this was the coronation time. The coronation day was around the corner and he would ascend and sit on the throne of David. 
but their timing was completely off. This was not the time for Christ to reign. Within the next eight weeks from this point to eight weeks out from this point, the Lord Jesus Christ would not only enter into Jerusalem, but he would be arrested, he would be punished, he would be crucified, he would die, he would be buried, he would rise again, and he would ascend to his Father in heaven. And you see, the Lord Jesus is king. He was born king. He's always been king. But he's not recognized as king on the earth. And it's still to come. And uh, just like the story, he must also go away to a far country and receive his kingship and then return and reward his servants. And that's what would take place, and that's what they didn't understand. He had to go to a far country to receive his kingdom. Heaven, by the way, is a far country. It's a long way away. I don't know where it is. I I know it's up. I don't know how far up, but it's up because that's where he went. He had to go to a far country, and so he did. And there in heaven, he was received by the Father, seated on the throne at the Father's right hand, and crowned as king, king of kings and Lord of lords. And he has given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and things on the earth and things under the earth. Every knee shall bow to him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Has that happened yet? Not yet, but it will. Everyone, every tongue, it says, will acknowledge that he is Lord. Everyone will be subject to him. It doesn't matter if a person is raised an atheist. He is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if a person is raised a Buddhist. He is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is still Lord over all. It doesn't matter if a person was raised a Hindu or a Muslim or in any other religion. There is only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. He alone is King of Kings. He alone is Lord of Lords. The only one who is the rightful king over all creation is Jesus Christ. And when he returns, everyone will be accountable to him, for he alone is king. God has established him as king. And when he returns as king, God will say to him or of him, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. So what the disciples did not see was that the cross must come first and that Jesus had to leave and his throne would be established forever when he returned to reign on the earth. So let's take a look at the story. Verse 12. There is a nobleman who goes to be approved as king. And Jesus is the nobleman in this particular parable. He is the one of noble birth. He came from the father. The wise men asked, remember, uh, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Um, and Jesus is telling his disciples that before he reigns, he must first go to a far country and receive a kingdom and then return. So he's telling them quite clearly that there's going to be a delay. But here's where you come in. Here's the part that you play in this whole plan of God. In the story, the nobleman calls ten of his servants to him 
and gives each servant one mina and tells him to do business until I come. And so each one receives the exact same amount and each one is told to trade with the money or to use it to produce a profit. And Jesus is commanding his followers to do something. The term is actually do something pragmatic, do something practical with this money. And uh, when I return, I will have a profit. Did Jesus ever um, tell his disciples to do business with him? I mean, apart from this parable, did he ever tell us to go out and do his business? Yeah, he did, actually. That's what the Great Commission is. Just before Jesus left uh, and he ascended into heaven, he said this in Matthew um, chapter 28. And Jesus came and he spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Each one of us has been given the same mina, the same commission, and that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go out into the marketplaces. Go out into the schools. Go out into the business place. Go out into the factories. Go out into whatever place you are are, um, moving about your business and preach the gospel. Whatever the arena of life that you find yourself in, go out and tell the world that Jesus saves. Do something with your mina so that when Jesus returns, you will be able to have it plus the interest, that plus the profit for him. And how you respond to this commission actually reveals a lot about you. It reveals a lot about your love for him. It reveals a lot about how much you care for his kingdom and for his purposes and how much you wish to honor him. So imagine this, being in this parable, and it is you, and he gives you $12,500 and says, here, take it, earn a profit, do something with it. Now, uh, several weeks ago, I gave you a dollar, right? And some of you did tremendous, way more than a dollar's worth. You came back with more than $5 worth. You came back with more than $10 worth. You did a really, really good job, and I want to you know, thank you, applaud you for that. I finally got rid of my dollar, by the way. So um, $12,500, three months' worth of wages for the average household, and they're given the freedom to use it any way they want to use it. Now, no, I'm not going to give you $12,500 each today. <laughs> I know you're thinking I would, but that's not what I'm going to do. Three months worth of wages to go out and spend and do with whatever you want to produce a profit. What would you do with it? How would you go about making a profit with that so that when, and it's not your money, by the way, it's his, so that when he returns, you would have to give to him the profit that you made. Freedom to use it any way you want. And here's how the story impacts us. If you want to be known as a faithful servant, a faithful steward, Um, and be rewarded for your service, you're going to have to do something with that $12,500, okay? Because the guy that put it in a handkerchief and put it in his pocket did not get a reward. So you've got to do something with what he gives you. Make a profit. It's clear from the parable that the Lord has already given you 
the resources that you need that are necessary to do his work. Do you believe that? He has. You have the resources already to do the work that he's called you to do. He's already given that to you. And if you believe that he is a kind and benevolent king, a gracious king, one who gives you beyond measure all that you need, then you will go about his work. He's generous, and he will provide you all that you need. In fact, the scripture plainly states this. So let me give you a couple examples. Isaiah 55.10 says this, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and they do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. When you go out and you preach the gospel, even if you don't see the return immediately, God is making a promise here that it will not return to him void. It will accomplish what he has set it out to accomplish. When you preach the gospel, there are people who are going to reject you. There are going to be people who reject the message, and there are going to be people who accept the message. In either case, it is accomplishing what God set it out to do. Those are condemned who refuse to believe him, and those are um, believers, and they're accepted as sons uh, for those who believe the gospel. Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians 9. It says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So each servant is given a mina, and he says, Do business until I come. Listen up, because this is God's will for your life. This is what God wants you to do. He wants you to do business until he comes. While you're waiting for him to return, he wants you to go out, buy and sell, make a profit. And Paul describes it as being like a farmer who has an apron full of uh, seed. And you know, the, you've seen the um, seed scatterers. They would fill it with uh, like a fold in their apron and they would fill it with seeds, and they'd go out, and they would scatter the seed across the field. And some of it would fall on hard ground. Some of it would fall on good soil and would produce uh, fruit. But what good is the seed if we put it in the apron, and all we do is look at it? What good is the seed is if I come up to uh, Michael, and I say, Hey, Michael, you want to take a look at my seeds? Can I see your seeds? Wow, they look the same. And we have a great theological discussion about seeds, but we never plant the seeds. What good is the seed? What good is the seed if we never reach into the pouch and actually scatter it onto the soil? What good is the seed if we never open our mouths and preach the gospel? That's the point. And so we can hold the gospel, believe the gospel, talk intelligently about the gospel, uh, go into great... Uh, theological soliloquies about the gospel, but if we never preach the gospel, no one gets saved. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, but you've got to spread the gospel. You've got to spread the seed. And the gospel, well, we can learn about the gospel and talk about the gospel and tell others about the gospel and how much we love the gospel, but we've got to preach the gospel or it does nobody any good. If we're not sowing the seed, guess what? We're not reaping a harvest either. 
It's as simple as that. If we don't sow the seed, then we're simply keeping it to ourselves. And so when the king comes back, we can say to him, well, I knew that you were an austere man, and I just wrapped it in my apron. I just wrapped it in a handkerchief because I knew that you were going to demand things of me that I wasn't prepared to give. Wow, really? Is that the Lord you know? An austere man who is a terrible punisher and is is one who exacts things from you that uh, you cannot cannot possibly provide for him? No. Listen to what the Scripture says. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. It may require sacrifice on our part. There's a scripture, it's in the uh, Psalm 126, and it says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I love this passage because it tells me something about the seed sower, the farmer. It says this, the context of that passage is actually the Jews coming back from captivity and they're given seed to take with them to sow for the first planting. And they have a choice when they get back to Israel. And that is, do they take this seed and grind it up for flour and make bread to fill their stomachs right now and have nothing later? Or do they take the seed now and plant it in the ground in tears because they are hungry now but reap a harvest later and come in with the sheaves with tears of joy and not tears of sorrow? That's the idea. So there may be sacrifices. As we serve the Lord, you have, there are decisions that we have to make. We have to say, okay... Do I spend this money right now on myself or do I make a sacrifice and it hurts? But in the end, there's going to be a harvest. What should I do? What should I do? And we make those decisions every day of our lives. That extra thing for me or that extra thing for the gospel. You know, it all adds up. Luke 19:15 says this, And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom... Then he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So one day the Lord Jesus is going to return and he's coming soon. And he wants to know how you did with your mina that he entrusted to you. Did you make a profit for him? Did you win souls for him? Did you do anything profitable with your life at all? Or did you sit on the sidelines as a spectator watching as others did the work? It's time for an accounting. And it's going to be soon, brothers and sisters. He is coming soon. Did you make the necessary sacrifices, the hard choices, the investments to produce a profit for the Lord? You see, you are in this parable. You're one of the servants. And he wants to know, how did you do? How are you doing with the mind that he's entrusted to you? Jesus is plainly saying here in this parable that he's going away. He's going away to a far country. But he's also saying very plainly, I'm coming again. And when he comes again, he is described, this event is described for us in Revelation 19. After Jesus has received the kingdom, after he has been appointed king, he mounts a white horse and he descends from heaven with myriad of his saints riding on white horses with him. And the angelic host is joining them to come to the earth 
uh, and as they ride triumphantly to the earth to set up his kingdom on the earth and his rule over all of the nations and over all of the peoples and tongues and tribes. And on his robe and on his thigh are the words, King of kings and Lord of lords, because that's who he is. Jesus Christ is the only king. And my Lord and my master will finally reign on the earth. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Revelation 11 says this, And loud voices in heaven proclaim, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I can just hear the Messiah tune as I say it. The parable does not look at the chronology and the stages of the second coming of Christ as we like to do. Instead, he is just telling us a story. I am going, I am coming again, and my reward is with me. And that's what he's saying here to us today. This coincides with the phrase that is often, um, uh, that is offered in heaven in Revelation eleven seventeen. It says this, the 24 elders fall down, they worship God, saying, we give thanks, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Does it sound familiar to you? Does it sound like the parable? That's what it is. But it's the reality which is coming. Now, as the Lord comes back, we're not going to hear from all ten of his servants that he gave a mina to. We're only going to hear from three of them. And they represent all ten. But uh, take a look and see where you fit in this. The first one comes and says, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Notice the love, the respect, the joy, the understanding this first servant had towards the Lord. He recognizes Jesus as his master. He plainly states that it is the Lord's mina. It belongs to him. You gave me this mina. That's true, but it's yours. And look what I did. No, he doesn't say that. He says, look what your mina did. Look what your gospel did, we could say. Look what it did. I opened my mouth and I said a few words, and it was the power of God unto salvation, and look how many believed. Wow. Look what your mina did. He's not even taking credit for what he did. He acknowledges that it was the Lord's mina and that it had earned ten times the amount that he had been given. Listen to the tender response of the Lord. Well done, good servant. And then the Lord does something that is enough to blow your mind. If the mina was worth $12,500 at the beginning, then the ten minas, ten times that, is $125,000. I'm pretty good at math when I'm multiplying by ten. He goes, 
Here's your $125,000, Lord. Your mina has made $125,000. And the Lord says, well done. Where did the minas go? Doesn't say. Not yet. So it just, he's just telling him how he gained um, the riches for him. And so the Lord then says, the Lord rewards him all out of proportion to his faithfulness. And he says, you, you got ten times the amount of that first mina. I'm going to reward you with ten cities. You're going to reign over ten cities. Wow. Think about that. You can't even buy a plot of land, not even a city lot, for $125,000, ten times the first mina. The Lord isn't getting, giving him just a city lot. He's saying, I'm going to give you ten cities to reign over. That's grace. That's the grace of God. That's what he does. It's amazing grace. The second servant multiplied his 12,500, became 62,500. Five times the amount. And the Lord rewarded him with five cities to reign over. So if you're faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to you, the rewards of your faithfulness are phenomenal. The Bible clearly teaches that we believers will reign with him. And it is clear that he is teaching that our sphere of influence will be in proportion to the faithfulness we displayed here on earth as we waited for his return. He will give lavishly, abundantly, generously, bountifully to our faithfulness uh, far beyond anything we have ever done for him. But that is the sphere in which God operates. He operates in the sphere of grace. You have to believe that, Christians. You have to believe that's how God operates. He saved you in the first place. Isn't that amazing grace? And then he says, okay, now I want you to serve me. And on top of that, I'm going to reward you for serving me. All you have to do is open your mouth and tell people about me. And whoever comes, I'm going to credit you with having done that for me. And I'm going to reward you until it blows your mind. That's the grace of God. That's the sphere in which grace operates. Next, the third type of servant comes to the Lord in verse 20. Then another came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I've kept and put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you're an austere man. You collect what you don't deposit, reap what you don't sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere. Is he really an austere man? I think not. But he's saying, look, this is how you think of me? Okay, let's just put it on your level. Just say I am an austere man. If you really believe that, then you should have at least taken the mina and given it to the bankers. How much money are you going to make by putting three months' worth of your income into the bank today? It's not even 1%. It's half of a half of a half a percent or something like that. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's nothing. But he said even that would have been better than to just wrap it up in a handkerchief and keep it. You didn't even do that. And you thought I was an austere man demanding more than I sowed, and you couldn't even do that much? Are you kidding me? And yet people do that. They have this gift from God, and they do nothing with it. And they're just wrapping up their salvation in a handkerchief. Bubble wrapped, completely protected, hermetically sealed. The servant had a rotten view of the Lord. And he's blaming the Lord for his own unfaithfulness. 
He's accusing the Lord of being harsh and unfair. And people do that today. You say, well, the Lord's not treating me well. The Lord's unfair to me. He doesn't give me what I need. He doesn't help me in my life. And they're grumblers and complainers and blasphemers of the Lord, accusing him of all kinds of evil. And they refuse to serve the Lord. They remain inactive in ministry. And they hold a grudge in their heart against the Lord. You know, I was thinking of a woman today on the way here to, today that is the exact opposite of this. You remember the, the account of the Lord and he went to the temple one day and his disciples were with him? And all the people were taking their money and they were dropping it in the treasury. And there was one woman that he pointed out to his disciples. He said, look at her. Watch her. And what did she do? She was a widow. She had no husband to support her. She had nobody to take care of her. And she reached into her purse or whatever she had, and she dropped two coins, two copper coins. It was the least coin that they had. She dropped two copper coins into the treasury. And the Lord said something to them that only he would know. She has taken her entire subsistence, her entire living, and she has put it into the treasury, everything she had. Do you think she had this thought like this wicked servant? Oh, the Lord is wicked. He's an austere man. He demands things that he he won't give. Do you know what she was showing by doing that? She was saying, Lord, I love you. You're worth everything I have. And I'm giving everything to you today because I know you love me. I know that you're a God of grace. And I know that I'm going to have needs tomorrow that you will provide for. And so I'm going to give it all to you today because tomorrow is taken care of. You've already got that addressed. That's the kind of woman who knows God. That woman will be rewarded. I don't know how many cities she'll reign over, but I'm sure it'll be plenty. A lot more than me. She's the exact opposite of this wicked servant. She had high thoughts of God, but the wicked servant had low thoughts of God. At the very least, he should have given his mind to somebody else who would have done something with it. Are you like that this morning? Are you doing anything with the spiritual opportunities that present themselves to you every day? Or are you like a farmer who examines his seed and he knows the potential of the seed but never plants it? He who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. In fact, the Lord calls such a person a wicked servant. Jesus is not like this Uh, servant's portrayal of him and so he says to those who are standing by take this man's mina and give it to the one who has 10 ah now there's a clue in this passage here we're going to talk about what he was doing there but i wondered what happened to those 10 minas i thought originally that the man had just given the 10 minas to the lord but i don't think that's the case because now he's given another mina and the people complain about it and they say wait a minute what are you doing giving him another mina? He already has 10. He still has the minas. So the Lord didn't take him away from him. He gave him the mina. He produced 10. The Lord said, great job. Well done. Here's 10 cities. You got to keep the minas too. And by the way, here's another one. <laughs> That's the grace of God. That's the way. God, somebody said this. Grace is outrageous. Do you believe that? It is. It's absolutely outrageous that God should treat sinners 
like this. And that's what he does. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given more. Wow. More. No matter how much you have, you'll be given more. That's grace. I gave you a mina, and you multiplied it to ten. That's great. That's grace. And then when you gave the ten minas, I gave you ten cities. That's abundant grace. The Lord never gives the ten minas. uh, He lets him keep the ten minas. That's amazing grace. And then he gives him one more. It's even beyond that. And that's the way the Lord is. And really, grace can be pictured this way for us, I think. Let's go back to that illustration of the seed. If you take one seed and you plant it in a little container, that one seed will grow into a plant that produces seed. And then you take the seed from that plant and you plant it in a garden. And now you have a garden full of plants that produce seeds. And then you take the seeds from that, those plants and you scatter them on a field. And that field produces plants that produce seed. And pretty soon you can plant it over a whole city. And that city is now producing plants that produce seeds. And pretty soon you have so many seeds, you've got to be like Joseph and start building these great granaries to, to fill so that you have enough for seven years. <laughs> That's the grace of God and how he rewards one seed planted for him. One seed. He will... Rest- he will that's the grace of God that keeps giving and giving and giving. There is absolutely no end of the gifts of God. There's no end of the multiplication. There's no end of the reward. That's the kind of king we serve. Do you believe that? We should serve him gladly and willingly and wholeheartedly and keep our eye on the prize. Finally, the Lord must deal with his enemies. These are the ones who said who followed him and said, we will not have this man reign over us. And so he grants them their desire. He says, you don't want me to reign over you? Okay, I'll grant you that desire. And he slays them. There's no one else they can submit to because he is the only king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Did you see yourself in the parable today? Are you the wicked one that he comes to destroy? Are you the unfaithful servant who has just hidden the treasure in a handkerchief and kept it? Or are you that faithful servant producing a crop of tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold, whatever it is that he allows you to do? The Lord is coming soon, brothers and sisters, and his reward is with him. Our time is up, so we'll end uh, with prayer and the meeting will be over. Lord, we thank you for your practical instruction in this parable. We thank you that in just a few short words, you tell us exactly like it is. We thank you that you promised that you would go away, that you would come again. And we believe, Lord, that uh, your coming is soon. And we pray that we would be found faithful. Help us, Lord, to take the minas that you've entrusted to us, whether it is money or possessions or our life or um, the talents and and, uh, gifts that you have given us, that we might use them all for your honor and for your glory, and that we might produce a profit for you, that when you come back, Lord, we will hear those words from your lips. Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray, Lord, that everyone here might see that reward. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.